Hello and welcome to Taking the Lead, a podcast from the Radiology Leadership Institute that profiles radiologists as leaders, seeking insight and inspiration from a variety of perspectives and experiences. I'm Jeff Rubin. Today I'm speaking with Brent Wagner, Executive Director of the American Board of Radiology. After starting his career in the Air Force and a key role as head of genitourinary radiology and program director at the Armed Forces Institute of Pathology, Dr. Wagner went into private practice in Reading, Pennsylvania, where he served as president of his group for 12 years and chairman of the board of directors of the Reading Health System and Tower Health for four years. He has been a longtime volunteer for the American Board of Radiology, serving as trustee for GU Radiology for five years and ABR president for two years. While serving as ABR president and Reading Health System board chair, Dr. Wagner earned a master's in business administration from the Cary Business School at Johns Hopkins University. Last summer, he left his radiology practice of 22 years to assume the role of ABR executive director, taking on this demanding leadership role through the unprecedented challenges of the COVID-19 pandemic. Welcome. Thanks very much, Jeff. Really glad to be here. And we're delighted to have you today. Our listeners love to hear about our guests' upbringing. Where were you born? Born in uh, southeastern Pennsylvania, outside of Philadelphia, uh, and I grew up basically in the extended suburbs of Philadelphia. And uh, what did your parents do for a living? My mom was a homemaker. My dad was an entrepreneur in retrospect, I guess, long before it was fashionable, but he was involved in several business ventures over the course of my growing up in diverse businesses. And in fact, it, it occurred to me that when I would run into his business partners, their advice all along was don't go into business because I think there were stresses associated with running, you know, what we'd call a startup today. And, and it, it occurred to me quite recently that that was one of the reasons that I kind of gravitated toward medicine because my, my father's uh, colleagues and my father to some degree too, just said, stay in school. Neither, neither one of my parents finished college, and I think they, they saw that as an important goal as well. But it was an interesting framing of the question for me, which was that one way or the other, apparently I was going to stay in school for a long time, and, and uh, the other advice from my father was keep your options open. So those two things have carried with me throughout the years. Yeah. So you uh, experienced the impact of uncertainty and stress in your father through those years? Yeah, that's part of it. The other part of it, just in the neighborhood beyond uh, my father's small business ventures in uh, the area where I grew up, the space program hit its peak and then its rapid decline after uh, after the uh, moon landing. And uh, what I saw was a lot of people who had been involved in in the industry behind the space program found themselves out of work as that sort of mini crash in, in at least where I grew up. That was impactful as well, was seeing that... Uh, People were, again, you know, keep your options open, stay in school, and, and don't rely on something that, you know, who would have guessed that, that the space program is as rapidly growing as it was in the mid-60s by the early 70s when I was 11 years old would have declined so, so dramatically. So perhaps that, that also had an impact. I, I should add that my father's two best friends from high school were both physicians. We didn't have any physicians in the family, but, but to some degree they were role models as well in terms of the opportunities to sort of always be learning 
and, uh, and the opportunity, as we all know, to be in a position to help people in a very direct way. How about brothers and sisters? Did she have any of them? I have a sister. She, she took a different path. She, she actually did a lot less schooling than I did, and she lives nearby and where I used to live in southeast Pennsylvania. Now, of course, I've relocated to Tucson, but, but the family's still southeastern Pennsylvania, and so I still think consider that to be home in some way. I'm liking my new home in, in southern Arizona as well. Excellent. Yeah. That's terrific. Did you, when you were growing up, would you have uh, dinner together? Did you sort of, can you, can you visualize any conversations that y- you might have had around the dinner table and give us a sense of, of what that was like? Well, it's interesting you say that. You know, my father, as the, as, as a businessman, he wasn't home for dinner very much. I mean, it's, it's ironic that uh, I think as a practicing physician, although there were call duties, of course, and, and, and there were some evenings that, uh, you know, where you didn't get home necessarily at, at five o'clock or six o'clock, the reality is for, uh, and I'm sure people see it in, in their friends and family too, when, when you're involved in these sort of perennial startups, you know, it was almost rare for my father to be home. Now, I will admit he was home every weekend because he didn't take call and the business world was shut down, you know, at that point. But, but uh, a lot of those conversations you know, work around these same kinds of themes is, you know, work hard, do a good job, you know, show up when you need to and, and be accountable for your actions. And, and those were the conversations uh, we would have. Although, again, it kind of reinforced that, that, that there, there are downsides to being in this uh, sort of entrepreneurial world of, of, of business. And, and certainly that may have been part of what made my family push me toward, <laughs> toward medicine. Uh, but I felt it, it was an easy push, I guess. Is yeah, S- sounds like important lessons uh, to have learned. Yes, absolutely. What was your first job outside the house? I was, this is not very glamorous. I was a, a mechanic, basically, uh, in, a, in a small business that refurbished equipment. A lot of it was used in gas stations, uh, gas pumps, and, and some of it was used in ancillary businesses that uh, related to, to petroleum. But it was it was not a very as I said not a very glamorous job. We we basically took equipment that was broken, we fixed it, fixed it up, and then uh, and then resold it. The idea today is kind of seems like it's very timely today. You know, reuse, right? Yeah, it's kind of that reuse recycle pattern. But we didn't see it that way. We saw it as as uh, kind of dirty, uncomfortable work. <laughs> but hmm. but it did. It, and again, in retrospect, uh, we were problem solving all the time. You know, it was not assembly line work because you know assembly line you're just putting together pieces that you know are gonna work in some ways we were experimenting you know, will this part work well can we make this uh you know rig up something that that makes the piece perform the way it's supposed to and and reliably and and i hadn't thought about that quite recently that, that in effect we were we were problem solvers one to one time someone brought in a piece of equipment the foreman and he said um i looked at it i said i've never seen anything like that he goes yeah i don't even know what it does but the customer wants it fixed <laughs> i said well, well where do we start and he said well the customer kind of said that was our problem, not his. And, and I said, okay. Well, so we took it on, and, and a week later, we had it working and and, um, and learned some lessons along the way. What was it? What did it do? Well, it turns out it was a piece of equipment that painted large pieces of metal like a ship. I mean, it was it was uh, not something for spray painting a car. It was, you know, multiply that by 10. And somewhat ironically, the, the solution laid in the O-rings. And 10 years later, of course, we would learn that O-rings were critical in the function of the, uh, the space shuttle. And the associated tragedy, but but uh, ironically, when I, when I was doing it, you know, we were kind of looking at it. Okay, we got to solve a set of problems, and, and it turned out it was get the right O-ring so that this thing could go back to painting whatever huge pieces of metal it was designed to paint. Seems like a pretty special purpose piece of equipment. Do you enjoy working with your hands? 
you know, since then I, I, uh, you know, I don't have hobbies that really relate to that. So I mean, my hobbies now are, are sort of things I do with family reading a little bit of golf and I am truly terrible and then skiing. And then I suppose those are kind of the extent of, of holidays. As you know, you know, living in Tucson, we have the opportunity to hike a lot, which is something new that I've kind of stumbled upon and, and really enjoy as well. Yeah. Yeah. It's beautiful here. Do you recall what your first leadership experience was growing up? You know, those grew somewhat slowly. I, I was in a fraternity in college and that was probably the first time that, that I was given the opportunity to, to lead. I was sort of the second in command. You know, we, we had the fraternity president and I would help him and, and we'd, uh, kind of run the, the group because it was a combination of, of course, a boarding house and a, a meal plan. And we had you know, responsibilities for a budget and that kind of thing. And did much the same thing actually in college, although we called it a fraternity, which really was just a boarding house of about 15 or 20 people. But it wasn't, I, I suppose, until sort of the chief resident function uh, in the Air Force when, uh, when I was in radiology residency, that I suppose it, it took, took on that next level. Yeah. Let's get there in a moment. So I, I see that you attained a Bachelor of Arts in Chemistry from Lafayette College. What led you to go to Lafayette? Well, it was it was in that part of the country, and it's kind of it's something kind of a long story. But my parents wanted me to go to private school. They felt that the the public school we were at, which I I think in retrospect was was pretty good, it was one of these well every opportunity you know again because they didn't uh, complete college. So the idea was well let's do what you need to do and. And in asking around, the, it turns out you can go to college almost at any age. And uh, it was close enough, but far enough away. So, so I, I chose to live at Lafayette, but it was only an hour and a half from home because I did it when I was a little less than 16 and a half years old. And, and that was the, 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 the compromise my parents and I reached because I didn't want to go away to a private school somewhere. And, and instead, they said, well, would you go to college? And I said, yeah, I could do that. So I wound up there almost by default because I said, okay, it's a, it's a good school. It's small, it's close by, but I can still live there. I wouldn't recommend that to anybody. I I think being a kid, as long as you can be a kid, is is a great thing. (laughs) But it worked out okay for me. Uh, How did you you come to enter college at 16 and a half? Well, like I say, you know, it it turns out colleges really don't, they don't need a, you don't need a high school diploma. I didn't have one, but, you know, you take the SAT and they were convinced that I didn't need somebody standing on my shoulder to tell me to do my homework. As I say, I wouldn't wouldn't necessarily recommend it. I think there's a lot of growing that happens in that last uh, couple of years of of high school. But it, like I say, it worked out. Uh, but that's yeah. how I wound up at that particular school. Great school. I mean, I, yeah. I'm not even sure I could get into it today. But, but it's uh, probably more competitive than it was. Yeah, I, I see that um, there were only about 600 students enrolled in the incoming class recently. Is that about the size of the classes when you attended? It, it was even smaller. It was uh, we were 2,000, almost exactly 2,000, so 500 students a class. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And it's gotten a little bit bigger. I mean, I can imagine that uh, even being only a year and a half younger than most of the incoming freshmen, that that's you know a pretty big, pretty big gap. I mean, what was it difficult socially through college to you know build relationships and to you know engage in the typical collegiate activities? Yeah, I, I think the, the size of the school probably helped. Um, so you, you ramp up pretty quickly, but but you're, you're, you're right. I mean, and, and that was, uh, I suppose, part of the challenge, which again, maybe part of why I wouldn't recommend it, but it worked out. I mean, it was, uh, you know, a few years in and you're the same as everybody else. And 
you know, it's fine. Yeah, I'll admit I was a bit of a nerd. So an awful lot of what I was doing there was just just studying. Uh, again, I wasn't the, the party guy overall anyway. There were plenty of times to have fun, and, and that was great, But and, and socialized. But at the same time, you know what it's like. I mean, you're pre-med, you're, you're trying to get good grades, and, and you spend an awful lot of time in the library. So so you, you knew you were pre-med at that point. Did you enter college thinking, I'm going into medicine? Pretty much, yeah. In fact, I started out in biology and switched to chemistry just because um, I was better at chemistry. So, <laughs> so it was, it was uh, almost a default. I, I just went in, yeah, thinking it was going to be things that would prepare me for, for medical school. We didn't have a pre-med major per se. In retrospect, I, I would have taken philosophy and then just taken the requisites uh, in, in science. But I was pretty good at science, but not as good, at, I suppose, in the liberal arts. So that was, uh, again, by default, you know, Go with your so you went for you went for chemistry because of your aptitude, as opposed to some burning underlying interest in the um, molecular nature of things. Yeah, yeah, I suppose. I mean, I, I still find it interesting. Actually, I think back to the stoichiometry we used to do it. It was kind of those were fascinating puzzles, and uh, so there there was that part of it. But at the same time, today, yeah, given a choice between reading about biology or reading about chemistry, I'd probably rather read about biology. And, and as I say, or, or Shakespeare or philosophy or something yeah. <laughs> far removed from the sciences. The fields have changed a lot since those days. Indeed. How about uh, any uh, formal extracurricular activities at Lafayette or athletics? No, no. I, I'm, I'm probably the least athletic person I know, so uh, not much of that. And I was involved a little bit in the school paper. And, and like I say, in the fraternity, you know, we were, we were a social organization as well as uh, sort of the, the idea of a place to live. So that was probably the the extent of the hobby was whatever minor leadership role I had there. And then you went on to Thomas Jefferson for medical school. What led you to choose Thomas Jefferson? Was it a circumstance where you were considering uh, many different schools or you were really trying to stay relatively local? Yeah, that's interesting. In in retrospect, I guess the the schools I looked at were, were basically local. I mean, there was this, back then, when I think of, to colleagues of mine who were also interested in medical school, who I was in class with at Lafayette, uh, most of us were applying regionally. In fact, an awful lot of my classmates wound up at Jefferson. But uh, you know, we had a good reputation. It was a solid school, and and I didn't know much about schools outside of the region. That was probably the, the biggest reason. So I, I shouldn't say it opened doors in any way that other medical schools wouldn't have. But at the same time, it had a good balance between its research endeavors and and the quality of education you get as it relates to community clinical care. Uh, In fact, that that latter part was a big emphasis. And at the time I went into medical school, I was thinking family medicine. And and Jefferson was more than, for example, University of Pennsylvania, a great school. But Jefferson seemed to emphasize the sort of the clinical care, especially in non-urban areas in Pennsylvania. So, uh, So that may have been what tipped the scales in that direction. And then what led you to radiology? The uh, This is just a little embarrassing, but when I started uh, third year of medical school, I started in OBGYN, and I thought it was absolutely terrific. So I'm doing a rotation and first exposure to clinical medicine, and, and I said, oh, this is great. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to do this. And then my next rotation was PEDS, and when I got to pediatrics, I said, oh, never mind. OBGYN is out. PEDS is where it is. I, you know, I'm going to be a pediatrician. And the, you can see where this is going. The third rotation was internal medicine. I said, oh, this is great. You know, so, so that, that went on for the entire third year of medical school. 
and, and then it carried over a little bit in the fourth year of medical school. The thing I was doing at the time, well, this is what I could see myself see myself doing. Now, I owe the Air Force some time, so in some way, I didn't have to make a decision right out of medical school because I was going to do an internship and wind up you know, serving, serving the Air Force to make up for my scholarship. But the last rotation I did in medical school was radiology. And it was in an Air Force hospital and uh, just great mentors. And, and I got to see that each case is kind of like the detective story. And, and the relationships that you have with clinicians are different from a lot of other specialties. So the short answer is it was the last thing I did. Therefore, it was the thing I was really, really wanted to do at that time. So somewhat ironic. I think if my last rotation had been something other than radiology, I would have wound up in, in that thing, whatever it, whatever it was. So, so it worked out. Yeah, I mean, it's good to see the, the good parts of anything. And uh, we're fortunate that radiology came last. <laughs> well, I certainly feel fortunate that way, yes. So you, you mentioned that uh, you spent time with the U.S. Air Force and uh, indicated that you, at the time you were in medical school, you had some time to pay back. Tell us, how did you get into the Air Force? What was the entree? And maybe take us through that decision process. Kind of embarrassing story, too. I got to my last year of college and I was, I was sort of out of money, you know, private school. And, and, and I kind of said, gee, I've, I've tapped out my loans and, and you know, my parents were were destitute, but they, you know, they, they kind of said, well, you know, you know, what are your plans here? And, uh, and there was a brochure, literally a paper brochure in my mailbox. And at the end of my third year of college, it was the Air Force ROTC program, meaning you could get in. It turns out you didn't have to get in at the very start as a freshman. You could actually join it along the way. And there was a special scholarship that transitioned into a health professional scholarship. So I said, okay, this is great. Now, so essentially, I joined ROTC for my last year of college, and that transitioned into the scholarship for medical school, which was important too, because there again, you know, as many of your listeners know, you have to figure out a way to pay for it. So I had no military really in my family. My father was too young for Korea, too old for Vietnam, and you know that was true of a lot of the contemporaries, you know, the, the parents of, of people I went to school with. So so I went up to the Air Force because a brochure showed up on my mailbox, and. and Stay ten years, uh, you know. So it, it wor- again, it worked out really, really well. But it was, if I looked at that brochure and threw it in the trash, I would not have wound up in the Air Force. Yeah, very timely, and certainly nothing embarrassing about you know needing to be resourceful and finding a way to pay for your education. Uh, what led you to choose the Air Force over other branches? Was it just that was the brochure in the mailbox? Exactly, that's exactly right. If it had been a Navy brochure, I would have been a Navy physician. So. <laughs> no, that's that's exactly it. The short answer is that that's who happened to. You know, I'm sure they just went and they, they put in thousands of these into the student mailboxes. You know, picture the old days when it wasn't email and it wasn't internet. And in fact, you know, you went to a, a student union and, and that's where you, that's where I was recruited in the Air Force. And in a hole about four by four inches that had one piece of mail and it. it was that for sure. So I see that you spent two years as a general practitioner on Caswell Air Force Base in Texas before beginning your residency at Wilford Hall. Was it your choice to go spend some time as a GP or was that the Air Force's choice? That was the Air Force's choice. I mean, I mean to go straight into a radiology residency, for example, at that time. And remember, I was, I was went into medical school thinking family medicine and, and left medical school thinking radiology had the slight edge over family medicine. But at least for radiology, there was not the option. And, and so I basically applied only for transitional year internships during fall of senior year. So I was going to do a PG-1 in as a, as a transitional infant, and then decide whether or not you know I would then complete a family medicine residency in the future, or 
as it turns out, radiology. Either way, the Air Force was going to get the general medical officer out of me. And in effect, you're a family practice doc. No peds, but everything else, uh, you know, everything from young recruits to retired Air Force and, 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 and Navy veterans. So that was that was what I did for two years. And, and ironically, the, the Air Force convinced me to do radiology because although the medicine in general in the military is wonderful, the care that people receive is great, it's not optimal for physicians because, of course, the resources aren't there. So I, I would learn in later years, you know, this idea of physicians doing physician work, which was one of my mantras when I was leading the radiology group, was not part of the, the military mindset. And, and as a result, uh, in some ways, I credit the Air Force for kind of saying, you know, you were on the fence about family medicine and radiology. Well, you know, it, it became radiology because I told myself, I, don't, I can't do family medicine. I can't see 30 patients a day. And, and sort of keep up with the record keeping and everything else. It's probably worse today, actually, for a lot of, of our family medicine colleagues. I'm sure it's, it's even worse than that. It is demanding, no doubt. Are there any lessons that you carry with you today from your time as a GP? You know, it's, I will admit it's been quite a few years. I, I think an awful lot of what we did was you, you become very resourceful in the way that you, you know, take care of people. You, you learn to prioritize what's important. And what isn't, and uh, you know, so managing that abnormal blood sugar or, or blood pressure that with a diastolic of one to five, you know, becomes a lot more important than you know. Hey, I've had back pain off and on for for five years, and what can I do about it? So you start to to triage those things for yourself because you have to. But beyond that, it was uh, it was it was a great practice. Just I think challenged in the way that we found ourselves with, with limited resources. I mean, the, the whole idea was you know, don't burn the taxpayer. And make sure that you're providing good care. So, in that respect, I suppose that's where the lessons came in. Near the conclusion of your time as a GP, you took a course in aerospace medicine. What led you to pursue that, and what was that program like? Yeah, that was almost an I shouldn't say an administrative error by the by the Air Force, but I, I was interested. What it is is really training to be a flight surgeon. So, training to take care of pilots, and you start looking at the physiology of you know dealing with G forces dealing with things as minor and what seems like minor is inner ear problems and, and obviously what it takes to keep a, a pilot flying. So it was, it was interesting to me because it, knowing that I wasn't going to be getting out of the Air Force anytime really soon because I was on my way to, as you said, to radiology residency, it was a way to learn about the Air Force. It, it really was. So for me, that's what it became, a little bit about the physiology of, of flight and a little bit about the mission uh, of the Air Force. So uh, in, in that sense, and I did it right before I I went on to the radiology residency, so never really got to apply those skills. And that's where the administrative error kind of comes in that, you know, they, they had an opening. I was qualified. I, I went off and did it. And I suppose if I had said after a year of radiology, I, I didn't want to do this anymore, then I could say, well, I'm a flight surgeon. So put me in charge of taking care of pilots. But as it was, as I said, it was, it was really just a glimpse into the, the non-medical side of the Air Force, if you will, the, the truly the, the line as, as it was referred to, uh, you know, what happens on the line as opposed to in the hospital. Yeah. You know, the adage that which doesn't kill us makes us stronger comes to mind. And uh, true. Yeah. yeah. I mean, did, did it make you want to fly? Did any uh, fighter pilots say, let's go up doc and uh, give you a ride? Well, we did get a couple of during that course. And, and I had a couple in ROTC too, where you're in a, a fighter, a, a jet trainer, basically a two seater jet. And uh, I always loved it. 
I mean, it was, it was terrific. It was, you know, stressful. A lot of people got sick. I was fortunate enough that I, I didn't get air sick, but flying upside down and, and that kind of thing, it was a lot of fun. And, and they were almost, they were almost motivational. Um, they were considered incentives that you could, that you could do this. And of course, fly surgeons do have to fly. So yeah, I love that. But by then, you know, you've already committed to medical school and, and actually you're starting to age out, believe it or not, by the time you're, you're done medical school in a transitional year and two years as general practitioner, you'd be a really old student pilot by Air Force standards because most of those, of course, are right out of college. Yeah, so you, uh, after a couple of years, you started your residency, Wilford Hall, and uh, ultimately, it seems that you developed a passion for genitourinary radiology. How did that develop? Did it develop during your residency? Yeah, I suppose so. I, I Of the modalities, you know, they had time, body MRI was just coming into kind of popularity, I suppose, and we but we were doing a lot of CT and I was doing a lot of ultrasound. So, so I was during my course as an attending, I was the chief of ultrasound and that, that by design then, you know, pushes you into female pelvic imaging, et cetera, that, that, that really would emphasize the GU part more than the GI part, I suppose. Uh, but we were abdominal imagers. We did, we did everything. The, the real push toward genital urinary was that the AFIP had an opportunity in that, you know, and they were still very separate in terms of GI and GU and the opening was GU. So I was able to do that. But the, um, the person doing the hiring at the time at AFIP read one of my MRI reports. And I guess I was having a good day because it was a, a report on endometriosis, a patient with multicorporal endometriosis. And, and he, he basically saw that report and said, that, you know, I, I want to hire a person like that. And we wound up on the phone and, and one thing went to another. So, so I suppose it, it wasn't interested at one level. On the other hand, you know, we were body imagers, but I was more on the ultrasound side, which meant you know, female pelvis. And it makes uh, it makes me wonder, uh, you know, what was in that report? <laughs> right. Well, I'm, I'm not sure I've ever dictated a report that long before because he showed it to me then after I got the job, and he said, "Well, this is." It. He told me this. He told me the story from his perspective, and I said, "Yeah, I don't dictate that way anymore. I, don't. <laughs> I must have a lot of time on my hands." <laughs> See, you were quoting references and yeah, stuff like that. It was it was very detailed. It sounded very articulate, and you know, of course, that was before voice recognition uh, software. So, so it was probably a lot longer than reports I would have done uh, once I was established in practice. Bravo! So, so right off the bat, out of residency, you took on a leadership role as chief of ultrasound, as you mentioned. You were also the assistant residency program director at Wilford Hall. How did you come to assume those leadership roles straight out of residency? You know, they're assigned for the most part. Uh, so, so it's military, right? So, so someone above you assigns that. And, and, and we got to remember, I, I want to qualify, you know, chief of ultrasound. It just meant, you know, we, we only had a faculty of, of uh, 20 people. Everyone was the chief of something, I suppose, <laughs> in some way. So, so just to be fair, you know, it's not as if I jumped over people more senior because the, the one good thing about the military residency, uh, there are a lot of good things, but, but one of the good things was that you always have fresh, freshly trained, you know, fresh minds coming along, whether they were from outside of residency or, or from within. The, the, I think the, the assistant program director, and back then it was a lot easier than being a program director today, but that role was because, you know, I think because I had come out of the program as, as chief resident, and, and I think they just saw that I could be a bridge between the, the trainees and the faculty. Um, and, and I suppose uh, I had an interest more than anything else. I'm not sure I had the aptitude, but I definitely had the interest in, in doing it. So when that opportunity came up and, and they asked, and I said, of course, 
that's that's terrific. So in some ways, I I can't say it was a competitive position that I that I won out over other people. Instead, you kind of get tapped on the shoulder by the senior person in the department, Colonel, who was not clinically active and, and just but his job was to find somebody who could do this and seemed like a good fit. Yeah, excellent. Now, after two years on staff at Wolford Hall, uh, you then went back east to the Uniform Services University of the Health Sciences in Bethesda for another two years to complete your 10-year military career. I'm guessing that USU was a pretty competitive assignment. Was that was the AFIP assignment something that was already connected to getting you to USU? or Exactly, yeah. yeah they were connected. Basically, the, the way the funding was set up is that USU your uh, uses was the funding source, but my office was at AFIP. So in effect, I was when I wasn't active at AFIP uh, with the resident courts, I was teaching medical students over at, over at USU. So going going straight from Wolford Hall then essentially to AFIP right. as a director was that a common pathway? That also seems pretty impressive at an early stage. You know. It, it, it wasn't unheard of. I, I think there were some people who got to that point more at a more senior level. In this case, you know, like with a lot of things, it, timing was everything. That opening existed, and prior to that, there hadn't been a dedicated uh, GU person. Uh, actually, Alan Davidson, one of my mentors, was a civilian in that role. But of course, you know, he at, at that stage, you know, he had published books and he, he knew everything there was, you know, with the kidney and the urinary tract, but, you know, came to over a uterus, you know, the, the, the kinds of things or, or even adrenal imaging with MRI, that was not, you know, his, his strength. So we overlapped in, in that sense. So, so in some ways there was an opening there. There was a, a willingness on the part of Wilford Hall to say, yeah, we can, we can backfill that position. And, and it was openings not only at AFIP, but at, as I say, simultaneously the funding source at, at USU. So it's a, as much as anything else a coincidence, you know, so I was in my early thirties and kind of just fell into this dream job. As I said, maybe less on aptitude than, than interest and, and timing. Yeah. Uh, yeah, it's, uh, it's, it's, uh, it was a fantastic opportunity. It's great that you were, you were able to capitalize on it. You know, I, I want to just sort of, you know, back up a moment. Uh, you know, we're talking about the AFIP, but the AFIP doesn't exist and hasn't existed for at least 10 years or so under that name. And for our listeners that, you know, might be, uh, you know, under their mid-40s, would you mind giving a little explanation of, you know, what what is the AFIP? What what was it? What is it today? Well, yeah, the, the AFIP was established in the late 40s, you know, it's as a... Well, and it becomes a little complicated because there was a nonprofit, non-government organization that occupied that same space in some ways. So there was this overlap between the ability to have uh, the ARP, the American Registry of Pathology, overlap with AARP. But where it became important to radiologists, of course, is it developed a resident course that uh, I attended as a resident in 1990. You know, it was a one-of-a-kind course. Uh, in many ways, it still is, even though it's changed its name and its, its focus a little bit. But at the time when I was on staff there, we we consulted with pathologists on an almost daily basis, uh, getting at this this kind of root radiologic pathologic correlation. And then the, and then the course, of course, we, we hosted over ninety five percent of of U.S. residents uh, over the years. Many international residents that was uh, developed in the nineties still goes on today. And then it evolved to uh, you know as the government started to cut back on funding. 
and around, I believe it was 2011, is when it was turned over to the American College of Radiology that now administers the American Institute of Radiology and Pathology. But in effect, it has the same teaching mission that it had before. The difference is the underpinnings in that building where you had pathologists working, you know, a floor above you and you interact with them every day. I, I think that's presented some challenges for the Institute, but it continues to, of course, provide, you know, excellent education in this sphere of radiologic pathologic correlation. Yeah, I mean, it must have been an incredible experience to be working uh, with pathologists, seeing some of the most interesting cases in the country on a daily basis. Yeah, I was there, I want to say it was probably around 1991 or even potentially getting into 92. But uh, I remember them telling us that uh, the AFIP was formed by Lincoln during the Civil War as a you know place for all of the amputations that were performed uh, during battlefield medical procedures to sort of bring them back and to learn about battlefield medicine. That's right. It was an offshoot of the, the Civil War Medical Museum. And uh, in fact, and I don't know the status of it today, but when I was on that campus, the museum was on the floor just below us. And, and we would, I just walked through there every once in a while. It was free and, and it was a very unusual museum because there was no national medical museum at the time uh, elsewhere that was the only one and and they actually had lincoln's uh, cervical spine specimen there with a, with a probe in it where the bullet tragically injured the cervical uh, cervical spine so and a whole bunch of other exhibits so in that sense that tradition lived physically in the same building you know the building was unusual jeff i don't even remember it it, it was a it was a bomb shelter in the eisenhower era it was obsolete about the time it was completed because it could not withstand the bombs were getting better faster than the buildings were. Um, so I, I had to go through a blast door to get to work every morning. Yeah. I my car and I would walk through these heavy blast doors that was almost like entering a bank vault. Uh, but we were in a concrete bunker, basically two stories or three stories below ground. Yeah, yeah. But a great place to work. It was almost like this cloister environment, I suppose, in some way that once you were down there, there were no windows to distract you. There, were no, there was no noise. Uh, you know, it's just the work. It was an iconic place, no yeah. doubt. Now, now your role as a staff radiologist there, you know, prior to becoming ultimately the chief of GU radiology and course director, what specifically was your day to day? Well, two days a week, I was still clinical. I, I thought that was important, I, and, and, and again, I was assigned to USU, which meant that I I worked a day a week at Walter Reed, the, the old Walter Reed in, in Washington proper, and then over at the Bethesda Naval Medical Center. So that was that was two days a week. The other three days a week, we took class cases that came in, processed them, and 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 reviewed them for selecting images that could then be used in future lectures. And as I said, we we met with the pathologist, going over the imaging, going over the uh, the pathology as part of the formal archiving process within the AFIP. The days became very full very quickly. And and looking back on it, I can remember, uh, with one or two exceptions, if you went in on a Saturday, you were going to run into a colleague. Uh, you know, and we were. You know, in theory, this was this was not a nine to five job, and, and your work spilled over into weekends a lot. There were long days, which seems odd because there wasn't we weren't rendering direct clinical care, but the projects uh, just became kind of overwhelming. And in fact, my successor, uh, when she took the job, I called her my old office number about a year later, and we were friends. And and uh, she picked up the phone, and I was not surprised at two in the afternoon on a Sunday she's sitting in the office because that was the kind of job it was. The, the, the work was so much fun and and so interesting that I think an awful lot of us took on project after project and it grew into, you know, 
this. You go in for a few hours every weekend just to kind of get caught up for the following week. Yeah. Yeah. It was a blast. Sounds like really an invigorating environment. You know, before we leave the military, a couple of other questions. I saw that uh, the Air Force recognized you with a couple of commendation medals. What did you do to earn those? Well, that's interesting, you know, for the people who've been in the military, an awful lot of those medals are, I used to call them the I've been moved medal because basically you're almost assigned those because you completed an assignment and it didn't, I guess, didn't kill anybody. Although in the military, that sounds odd. So, so let me just say you didn't, you know, mess anything up and, and you did your job and, and you brought credit to the unit. And effectively, that's what it is to bring credit to the Air Force and to the, the organization you were serving. So I, I got to admit, I, none of those medals were because I, threw myself on a grenade. We didn't have many grenades in the hospital. I guess that's part of the problem. But, but it, you know, we, we wound up, an awful lot of those commendations are, are kind of built into that. My last one, I, I got to admit, I'm not big on ceremony. And the last one I got was at my new assignment at, at USU. And I, I told my, uh, the, the colonel who was in charge of, who administered kind of my direct report, she said, well, you're going to get this medal. And, and she goes, well, when do you want the ceremony? And I said, can we just make it very informal, just hand it to me. And so a week later I showed up and there was the certificate there with a yellow sticky on it. And she goes, congratulations. And that was and with a little star and that was it. So she was, she did what I wanted, which is I don't need the ceremony part of this, but yeah, those, those commendations uh, for me were, you know, they're, they're nice, but I, I, I felt in some way they minimized, you know, the, the true commendations that were by people who were in the field. And, and really making sacrifices, sometimes physical sacrifices for the mission. So not to, not to demean what we did, but at the same time, there were a lot of people who sacrificed a lot more than I did as part of their military service. What leadership lessons do you take from your time in the military uh, that you rely on today? You know, probably the biggest one is that there was sometimes inherent in, in military leadership, there was ironically sometimes a lack of accountability. And, and I know that sounds odd, and, and it, it struck me as odd at the time. But but the reality is the organization was so large, so bureaucratic, that one could easily get, and this didn't, this didn't really apply to medicine very much, but you could get lost in, in the, the enormity of the organization. And, and, I, and I think there was this tendency where Poorly done. I mean, what do you, you can't get fired really in the strictest sense. And if you learn how to work the system, you can succeed without truly being accountable to the people you serve. And, and when you think about, you know, I know in your organization, it's a you know, complex organization. So in any large hospital, there are these relationships that are based on what do you, what service do you provide? You know, what value do you provide to the others around you? And, and that was in some ways, I think it was inherent in certain elements in the in the military structure, especially on the medical side. In other areas, perhaps not so much. And I know that's a, that's a vague way to basically say I, I think accountability actually, ironically, had, had its very strength in the military, and at the same time was one of its weaknesses because for certain jobs and certain functions, a very very large organization that is uh, so structured in in its leadership becomes problematic in that way. Yeah, interesting observation. You know, it, it seems like you were just really getting rolling in Bethesda, and then you pivoted to private practice at West Reading Radiology Associates in Reading, Pennsylvania. What led to that transition? Well, at the time, um, 
the there was an opportunity to get back directly into teaching the and West Reading was was back closer to home. A close colleague uh, was on the staff there, and at the time they had a residency, so it was a community practice that had a, a decades-old residency, and this was a chance to sort of get back into practice the, the clinical care. I alluded to it. I hate to use the word burnout in this context, but the AFIP was perhaps it was my inability to say no to, to, to extra projects and things. And, and it was ironically going to a private practice would mean I'd probably get to spend more time with my family. There was another very practical concern. And that was that I'd been in for 10 years. I'd never been overseas. And back when I wanted to go, the, those opportunities weren't available to me. Someone else either. Uh, you know, I was, I was in training or I was at AFIP or whatever it might be. Um, so when I got out of the, the military, it was for that reason. And then, and then a couple of years later, I just said, you know, I, I'd like to get back into a practice environment. So that's where I wound up. I, ironically, of course, I got there in, uh, in 1998 and in May and in June, we were told the residency was, was history. It was going away. So a month later. So all those good things I talked about, how my timing worked out in my favor, this one did not. You know, the simple reason was money. You'll remember in the late 90s, GME dollars had really started to dry up and that had a direct impact on the hospital's radiology residency. So we trained people for a couple more years and then there hasn't been a residency in that environment since. So ironically, I, I, I love the practice. It was, a, it was a great opportunity over 22 years, but I wouldn't have gone there if it didn't have the radiology residency. And about the same time I was unpacking my <laughs> my office uh, equipment into the, into the new practice, uh, they told me, well, yeah, we're not going to have a residency. Yeah. You know, it's all too common a story where we, you know, start things off with certain expectations and the world changes. So I'm sure there's other examples we'll come to as we get further into the conversation. It, so, you know, it, it, you, you mentioned it as a pivot and it became a personal pivot then too, because, you know, it's, it's then, then my mindset changes. Okay. Well, what, what am I going to do in this, in this new environment that I really didn't anticipate? As you say, we, we can touch on that more, but, but that it became a, you know, you, you pivot for a set of reasons to then change rapidly and you pivot again. Yeah. Well, we'll, you know, elaborate. Well, I'll tell well, you what. Well, for me, it became, you know, it was all about the, the clinical care at the time. We were a group at that time of about 15 or 16 radiologists, but growing rapidly. You'll remember that around around 2000, late 90s, early 2000s. And, and every group was growing quickly. And, and you know, I fell into sort of the, the idea of, well, I enjoyed doing ultrasound. I enjoyed doing the body imaging, but we took call and everything. So it was a very busy emergency room at one time, quite recently the largest in the state of Pennsylvania. And we were service, serving that with 135,000 visits to the emergency room. So for me, it, it became, okay, well, let's, let's build a practice. Let's, let's do it better than, than we had done in the past as we're growing. Going. So I found myself, I got there in 98, I guess it was 2002 when there was an opportunity, there was a change in leadership and there was an opportunity to become group president. And, and you know, people kind of said, well, how do, how do you do that? Well, remember I started late, right? I, I didn't get there until I was in my late thirties. I wasn't right out training. So I'd done the 10 years in the air force. But the other thing is that, and it's, it's really true, and I'm sure you can attest to this, and I'm paraphrasing Woody Allen, and I'm not even sure the quote should be directly attributed to him, but you know, 80% of success is showing up, and, and it really is. All it is is being there. A lot of us can do that, and, and I could do that. And I found myself volunteering for the little things. You know, the, the, uh, uh, I like this example just because it's true, and it, and it still would be, important today when people ask me how did you 
ascend, you know, to, to these these levels with federal staff president and, and, and former chairman and things. And I said, you know, it started out in the CME committee. Nobody wanted to do it. There's nothing glamorous about the CME committee. I, personally, again, I'm a nerd, you know, so for me it was glamorous, but but for most people it wouldn't be viewed as something glamorous. And and you, you go there because you get to meet people from all different departments. It's, uh, you know, you're doing good work. You're doing important work that is you know, supporting the CME committee of a, of a medical staff of almost 1,000 people. But it's not glamorous. It's not something you'd be, you know, talking about at a cocktail party. At the same time, that's where it starts. And then when the next opportunity comes along, what's something a little bigger? And, and as long as you showed up and read the materials in advance and you, you did what you were expected to do, uh, and you know this from your own life experience, this is this is where success comes. It, it comes from the little things early on that then build into bigger things. And they come from showing up and, and doing what's expected of you or a little more. Yeah. Yeah, no, I mean, I think that that is such an important point to emphasize. Can't say how many times I heard in my early years from folks, you need to learn to say no. Sometimes when your instincts say to say yes, then that is the right instinct to pursue. And obviously you don't want to burn yourself out and you need to try to achieve balance as best as possible. But, you know, a lot of these roles, as you describe, you know, can be very empowering. And I know you spent time as the chief of the medical staff uh, and, uh, you know, uh, myself in a, a very similar role, uh, it was it was really fantastic to get to know uh, a broad scope of physicians that you know in many respects touched radiology, but uh, getting to sort of enter their world and hear the issues that they were concerned about, uh, I found you know particularly interesting and empowering. Yeah, and you're right. Actually, I think that that importance of saying no becomes even more relevant the, the further along in my career that I that I got, and uh, I even. Friends, uh, you know, of, of sort of at the same point in our careers would say, you know, you gotta only say yes to the things where it's a, it's an enthusiastic yes. Meaning if you have to talk yourself into it, you probably ought to be saying no by the time, you know, again, you get far enough along your career. But for me, it was it, just as you said, you know, it, it was the ability, you know, did you want to be involved in, in making something and doing something interesting? I mean, that, that's really what it came down to for me. So the, the role in the medical staff came along with, uh, you know, the idea of okay, run for uh, medical staff president. And ultimately, it was a nine-year commitment, actually, because you do three years as vice president, three as president, three as uh, as past president. You know, why, why would you want to do that? And, and for me, it became, you know, how can I help? How, how can I do this? And, and for me, it was that servant leader element. And I found it interesting. It, it was just interesting to me. And I would be approached by younger people. And, and the motives are important because if the motive is, well, I'd like to be there when, those conversations are had because I, I want to know what's going on. I, yeah, I kind of understand that. But at the same time, it, it has to be, you know, how can I help, not what's in it for me. I had a colleague, it's probably about four or five years ago, who talking about forming a, a task force that would look at a, a certain question in a very preliminary way. And, and, you know, the question was, how can I get in on that? And, and the question really should be, how can I be of help? So I found myself during my time on the hospital board, there'd be meetings that, you know, someone was going to sit down and have a conversation around something. And I, I never said, I, I want to be involved. What I said instead was, let me know if I can help. And, and, and to me, that's a huge difference is, is that sort of, that, that certainly your attitude that, that I think comes more easily to some than others. Um, but it can't be about the glory. 
uh, you're just going to be disappointed. It can't be about the unquote power because there really isn't much. You know, <laughs> the, the power comes because people give it to you, not because you choose to take it. So I, I, I think this, I'm sure this overlaps with your experience in, in a lot of ways too. It's, it's really what can I do to help, not how can I be in a position to call the shots? And uh, because the reality is, you don't have to call the shots very often. Yeah. No, it's such a great point that you took the time to articulate. I really appreciate that you did. When you think back to your years as the president of the group, the leadership positions that you had in the hospital, what comes to you as your proudest moments? That's a great question. I And there are actually two separate things. As With the group, the, the proudest moments revolved around reassuring radiologists who, and this is, this is common to everyone, everyone in a new job, you know, they start to have self-doubt. You know, did I make the right call? Am I good enough for this? Am I going to do a good job? You know, we all want to do a good job, right? So in small doses, and I can't say it was universal, but it was, I hope with most of the people that brought on during that time, I can remember many times, you know, don't sell yourself short. We have not. We have not given up on you. Don't give up on yourself. And this is the rough patches that happen with any new job. You're three months in, four months in. And and even to the point of uh, we'd have some who were frightened off by procedures, for example. One who just said, I'm not comfortable doing lumbar punctures. I said, right, we need to be uncomfortable with this. Or we can sit down and we can make you so you're comfortable because, you know, you'll see one, do one. Do another, do another, and, and, and we'll make sure that, you know, when it comes up at two in the morning, you can do a lumbar puncture when the emergency room asks you to, and not be afraid of that and not be a negative in your work. So uh, to the point where that, that particular individual stands out in that regard, five years later, like, you know, it, it wasn't a question of can I get out of this procedure during the day and instead was jumping on the opportunity to do these procedures. Well, you know, so, so I take that as kind of a accomplishments that relate to personnel. In the, group. the other big one, actually, is group president. I think our relationship with the medical staff improved significantly during my tenure. I'd like to say that I had a lot to do with that. I'm not sure that's true. I think it was about creating for everyone, because I'm only one person out of at that time, you know, over 20. I can be the nicest guy in the world. That's not going to help us. What we need is a culture that says we understand that our place in the medical staff is to provide value to the clinicians and, and then do that. And, and uh, uh, so those two fit in the group present, right? The idea of making sure that new new people to the group, we'd have a long ramp up to call. We'd have make sure that they felt that they were part of the organization. It didn't work every time, but I think for the most part it did. Now, the second thing you talk about, the president of the medical staff, the, the, the crowning achievement actually was to change the leadership, the governance structure. And, and what we did was we downsized the medical executive committee. Now, it sounds odd. But it actually fits with a whole bunch of, of recent publications, some of the JCR, but that pop up everywhere and uh, business review, et cetera. And that is that large groups, while they're representational, don't make good decisions. Another way to say it, it's not quite the same thing, is they don't make decisions well. And that's, that's two different things, but you, and you know this. Uh, but, but at the same time, we had a medical executive committee of 27 people. And it was, uh, you know, and great people, smart, hard workers dedicated to the mission, and it was dysfunctional because there were 27 people in the room, but it was representational. Every time we added we added the trauma service, okay, the chief of trauma service, now on the medical executive committee, we had the, the 
positions that became almost slotted positions, which, which is kind of a bad word. It's because the, the goal of the medical executive committee is not to serve the interests as a radiologist, let's say, as the chair of radiology. I'm not there to serve radiology. I'm there to serve the mission of the hospital or the medical staff or more or less in, in uh, sync. So my biggest role was, was in analyzing the medical executive committee with the help of a consultant attorney. And, and it was an iterative process. We went from just out and out, no, this, we're not going to let this happen. Because remember those 27 people, some of them had to give up their, their status, if you will, their, their role in this, their involvement. But we had, uh, we got it down to 15. The lawyer wanted, actually the lawyer wanted 12. I told her I could get her to 15. It was a bloodbath. We got it to 15. And, uh, and the irony, and, and you'll appreciate this too, is that the, they went into effect the same day that I was no longer president of the medical staff. So I never, I never got the benefit of being able to run a conversation among 12 people instead of 27. But, but I think, you know, and it's difficult. It's a difficult, it's counterintuitive, isn't it? You, you'd think in a room like that, you would want lots of representation. You want to hear from the trauma service. You want to hear from infectious disease. You, you know, you want all these people there. We had a, a seat for the chief medical information officer. The problem is that when it comes to making decisions, we really want us to call in people like that to to advise, to uh, to inform, but not necessarily to deliberate and, and come to decisions. And, and and you could argue that 15 was still too large. We should have gotten it down closer to 10 or 12, uh, because as you know, and many of your listeners will know this too, you know the most effective meetings are when you have five to seven people, not when you have 25. So that was I, I, my sort of single biggest accomplishment. But interestingly, of course, it's not viewed as an accomplishment to some of those 27 people who were no longer in the room. But at the same time, years later, I would hear from the people who who were involved in saying, what would we have done if we hadn't done this, if we hadn't kind of had this wake-up call and, and just appreciated just how important it was by law. We define the governance of, you know, an organization with a thousand plus members of the medical system. Yeah. Yeah, no, it's a heavy lift. And uh, you very nicely articulated the challenges of getting the organization to a better place. And you're right. Sometimes you do all that work for the next ones to follow to you know get the benefit. But it, it does sound like it was a, a terrific initiative. Yeah, it's funny. It brings back, you know, my father used to say, I didn't realize he was paraphrasing the Boy Scouts because uh, the scouting was not a big part of me growing up. And I don't think it was for him either. But, you know, leave a place better than you found it. Yeah. This fit into that into that mold is, you know, something, again, my, my dad had, he, he must have told me that a hundred times when I was growing up. I mean, and it's really a nice example of sort of activist leadership. I mean, it's easy to get into those positions and just sort of leave things alone, status quo. But, uh, you know, making the decision to shake things up, you know, getting lawyers involved. You were practicing radiology at that point. Mm-hmm. I, you know, right. I'm, I'm sure that at some level, this wasn't something you needed entering your life. But clearly, you know, you felt the responsibility of the role and you seized the moment. Well, ironically, that, that particular conversation where we had a I, I have a few advocates, and, and this was an example of, you know, change management, the, uh, which would be a whole different topic for us today. But one of the, the tools is, you know, you have to convince people that there's a problem, right? There's something we have to address. And, and that took a while because it's difficult to first in this that, that the structure itself is is uh, counterproductive. And uh, so one of my allies in this who, who was actually more senior than I was, we left one of the 
one of these discussions where and he said, if you ever needed an example of why you need to downsize this group, it was that conversation we just had. <laughs> so so the, the, the irony is that the very thing that you're trying to fix is sometimes the impediment to, to get there, gets that activism you were talking about. 13 years after leaving the AFIP, you became the genitourinary imaging trustee for the ABR. I think that's pretty cool that you were able to lock in in a formal GU radiology role after such a long break. What, what was your role as trustee? Well, the, the, the trustee primarily is responsible. Uh, I'll break it into two categories. One is that the two staff committees that develop content for the exams. And, and that would include at the time I joined, we were still doing oral exams and diagnostic radiology for so, so I was assigned to the genitourinary segment of the content and the administration of those exams uh, in the sense that you have recruit examiners for the diagnostic radiology oral and develop uh, the test content for our various exams, whether it be you know, what we now call the core exam or the, or the uh, certifying exam. And now, of course, we have online college student assessment. So all that would be a uh, fault to the trustee. The, the other role in, in, in our governance split in 2015 uh, within the ABR but the, the trustees at that time also had a role in the, the decision-making. So the hiring of the chief executive officer, the uh, decisions around major financial transactions, for example, extended lease arrangements, et cetera. So the, the trustees also did that. They, they did what a, a, a governing board would do for a, for a nonprofit. And basically just had that, those fiducial responsibilities that you're well aware of, you know, the duties, uh, and the obligations to the mission, and one of those courses is financial. So in some ways, the trustee function in, at the ABR at that time was an amalgam of those two things. On the one hand, these fiduciary responsibilities. On the other hand, the, the idea of developing content and, and making sure committees were well served by around a 1,000 that served the ABR. Now those roles have been split apart. But, but I should mention that, that the, the way I wound up there, it relates almost to that CME committee example I gave when I first started at Reading Hospital, I was just a, an item writer that I think grew out of uh, item in question with the same thing at DBR. So, so I was writing items for the exams. And I think I, I sort of stumbled into that because I had been at AFIP at, at some point in the past. So I, I was still lecturing there. In fact, right up until March, I was still lecturing there. So, so they thought I could contribute content in that regard, and I did. But it gets back to, you know, if you, if you do the work, and show up. Uh, that even in private practice, when I was approached to be a trustee, you know, my mentor at the time, and, uh, you know, I said, I'm not academic enough for that role. But no, we're trying to make sure that we have people from private practice sort of diversify. I told myself at the beginning, I said, this will probably never happen. You know, it was, it was, it, it was uh, certainly in some ways it was, it was a compliment, but at the same time, I, I said, you know, there are, 20 other people more qualified than I am to do this. Um, and, and I told myself, this will probably never happen. But I said, sure, I'd, I'd like to be considered for that. And, and it grew out of, I, I believe, more than anything else is the ability to to run a small group of and and do it with the same skills that you bring probably to your job every day and, and uh, you know, do it in some small way and, and, and wound up in that role. Yeah. Yeah. Now, during your time as ABR trustee, you became chair of the board of directors of Reading Health System and Tower Health, 
a position that you held for four years. How did you ascend to that leadership role? You know, I hate to sound repetitive. It was the same idea. You know, it's it's the same. Uh, we, we were at the time, incidentally, that board got downsized at the same time, much the way the Medical Executive Committee does, in, in unrelated fashion, although ironically to about the same numbers. And I was involved in both, although my role was was as a spectator for that second one as the downsized. But as we downsized, the governance model was, was sort of shaken at the roots in the sense that this representational role had been part of the board of the health system, meaning the chief of medicine, the chief of surgery, the chief of obstetrics and gynecology. These were all board positions, but they were slotted positions. They were, and, and that's just a, not a good model for board governance because you really should be obligated to those fiduciary responsibilities. Remember those those same things that, that you bring to the board. And not you're not there to represent the medical staff or other doctors or the department of surgery. And as we shook away from that, I, I think again, you know, maybe it's a matter of you, you kind of know when to listen and you know when to talk. And uh, they kind of took me aside and said, "Would you be willing to, you know, be considered for this role?" And, I, and at first, you know, I, I said, I said well, "Yeah, I, you know, what can I do to help you?" It really came that. I, I think honestly, that was probably the biggest thing that gets you into a role like that. Uh, at the time, I was doing it. I was uh, toward the end of it. I was the only physician on the board. Those are generally not made up of physicians. They're actually, or I should say, health system boards are, are almost never physician heavy. They're actually made up of, of local leaders of industry, right? They're made up of attorneys and accountants and, and, and people who are community that would perform on United Way, you know, with people like that on our board. And, and I think what at least prompted them to at least look at me as a candidate for that was because. At every step along the way, I, I probably was more interested in how can I help than, you know, I need to be involved. Serving, serving as board chair, did you ever find yourself at odds with the interests of your practice? Well, we were very careful that when direct conversations came up regarding the practice that I would recuse myself. And, and uh, so that was not really an issue. We had a contract with the hospital but it was a large enough organization that that, uh, that conflict was, you know, we, we disclosed it. It was, uh, I, I, the biggest conflict in my practice was that when I was sitting through a day-long board meeting, I wasn't reading the CT scans. And I understand that. And, and certainly that means someone else had to read the CT scans. And in fact, when I, when I had the opportunity, I would make sure that to share that with the board and just say, you know, I'm grateful to my group because without them, I couldn't do this. I couldn't come up with enough time off to really be part of that. So probably the, the biggest problem was not in the contracting relationship we had, et cetera, because the lawyers at the board had make sure that that was, you know, cleaner than it needed to be. Even the biggest friction really was, you know, well, Brent, you know, I'd go away for a one hour meeting that would turn into a three hour meeting and I had to call back and say, someone needs to cover for me until I get back. And it's tough. And I understand. I mean, I, I get it. I, I think that the group was willing to support it and, and, and certainly did. I think when, where it became problematic is the actual real life impact, which is okay. Someone else has to do a thyroid biopsy because we're still in a, in a meeting that, that ran over or that kind of thing. Yeah, no, it's a great point. I mean, the adage that it takes a village, and you do rely on your colleagues, your partners, to help allow you to do the the roles that you have that you need to do. So now, just two years ago, you graduated from the Carey School of Business at Johns Hopkins University. 
What led you to seek an MBA after having had so much leadership and management experience under your belt already? Well, I guess it was two things. One is I still felt that on the finance side, even though, you know, the business model for a private practice is not very complicated when you get right down to it. Yeah, we were successful because it's a hard business model to fail at, honestly, uh, or at least it was. I, maybe it's more challenging today. I think it probably is a little bit more challenging. But but the other the, the other side of it was, and, and honestly, uh, I credit the RLI. Well, I was at the first summit. I'm going to get the year wrong. It might have been 2012. And uh, Jeff, I think you were at the, if not the first one, the second one, or, or I can't remember where I kind of met up at one of these. And I went to, I think, eight of them in, in sequence or seven of them in sequence. And, and as you know, those are business faculty that are teaching us during those, those uh, summits. And I, I thought they were phenomenal. Business people think differently. And, and if we can borrow from them, and I don't think they, they're not, it's not that they're, you know, they bring less emotion to the practice. That's not really the issue. Uh, it's, it's really about a very analytical looking at things that I think complements what we do as physicians. It's not in conflict with it, um, but it does allow us to, to assess a problem in a very different way. Uh, because as you know, medicine is a, t- a task-oriented thing. It's largely done by individuals, right? I mean, there's been a lot written about maybe it shouldn't be as much by individuals, but it certainly is task-oriented. Uh, whereas the ability to see the large picture, I think, is part of, intrinsically part of any success, uh, any successful business, right? So if you're only looking at the next week's worth of production of anything, you can't run a business. But I can look at that next thyroid biopsy I have to do and say, okay, I've got a thyroid biopsy to get done. I've got to do it extremely well. I've got to make sure the patient's happy and that we don't have a complication. And that, but that's a very episodic thing as opposed to the way business people think. So, uh, so I credit the RLI. I mean, kind of pushing me, and and I did it for interest sake. You know, obviously it wasn't going to. In fact, and you'll appreciate this since, I, of course, you did your MBA as well. One of the exercises we had when we were assessing sort of the employment arrangement that somebody might have is, it was a test question on one of the exams. Is is it worth it for a fifty-seven-year-old individual to get his MBA? And you had to plot out the additional earnings over time, their expected career, but it cost them an opportunity cost and, and true financial cost. And the answer was no. And here I was, fifty-seven years old, and I was taking this exam. And I don't think the professor did that on purpose, but but basically the answer to the exam question was, I never should have done my. So so the irony was not lost on me. And, I, and as I say, I don't think he did that on purpose, but. I did it for interest. I did it because I found it fascinating the way business people think, and it was terrific. Uh, and, and then on top of that, I think you know a better understanding of accounting and finance. Yeah, I mean, uh, <laughs> I wouldn't be so sure that it wasn't on purpose <laughs> to offer that question. <laughs> but the flip side is is that you know the the adage you know feed your head trust your gut there's two sides to you know any uh, business and management question uh, the quantitative and the sort of the poetry side and so i would ask you you know based upon whatever modeling that one pursued about whether it was worth it at age 57 to you was it worth it oh absolutely no, there you was, go it was true i mean it was you know i learned things and and, and dealt into things i never would have thought about and in a different way, you know, the rough spot for me was uh, I was older than, than the parents classmates. <laughs> you know, yeah, that's, that's going to happen. So that's okay. Or, or, or I found I, I stayed another way. I had classmates who were younger than my children. 
it's a privilege to be able to learn at that stage and to bring the basket of experiences with you. I found epiphanies occurring to me in the classroom uh, and my reanalyzing occurrences that had happened maybe you know eight or ten years ago within the construct of these new um, tools. Uh, I just thought that was invaluable. Yep. Yeah, fantastic. What about you? What what have been some of your greatest epiphanies from the MBA program? You know, I think there were most of them were, were little epiphanies. I guess <laughs> to say it a different way. Okay. You know, a lot of the understanding around uh, and, and these were things I knew. Uh, they were things that I think were brought into sharp relief. Uh, you, you know, whether they were talking about the time value of money, what motivates people, a little bit of the change management stuff, and and uh, but but I think the biggest single thing was was value. You know, that's become, you know, it grows out of Porter's work, as you know, and it, and others, but, but you know, this idea that ultimately we have stakeholders to whom, and then that's going to be true, whether it's the a department of radiology, a, a health system and, and, and taking, and I suppose the second piece is that taking the long view of, of what success looks like and what that path is going to be uh, in getting to success. So if, if there were big ones, it would be those. There are a whole bunch of little ones. I, ironically, one of the things, one of the courses I liked the most, just because it made me think even outside of this box of, of radiology and the ABR, et cetera, uh, was a course on world trade, which we could argue has nothing to do with with anything that I do day to day. But when we start talking about sustainable goals and the way the United Nations looks at developing countries and, you know, a fascinating elective, it was, it was only about two weeks long including a week spent in Peru. I, I mean, that's one of the more memorable things. And it has nothing to do with what I bring to work every day, but the, the kinds of things you learn along the way and, and truly a big picture, right? That's the, big, the biggest picture thing is when you start talking about sustainable goals. You know, that was, that was a wonderful experience. Last year, you left Pennsylvania and your practice of 22 years relocating to Tucson and becoming the executive director of the ABR how would you describe uh, your roles and responsibilities within this current position? Well, you know, it's it's twofold, I suppose. One is running the organization itself. We are right around 100 employees and you know, a budget of about $18 million. These are public numbers. So, you know, we have an organization around and, and that is providing the things that we do, the, the mission-oriented things regarding board certification. I think that, and that, that takes up because a lot of that can be sort of delegated, if you will, and, and the staff I have here is, is excellent. You know, that takes up probably less than half of the time. Uh, the rest of the time is, is getting back to that value question for stakeholders. And whether it's uh, permanent directors, uh, the candidates, the diplomates, ultimately, um, you know, the public. And, and that's uh, our mission sits there. But I don't interact with the public very much, right? I mean, I don't, you know, we don't hear from them because there's this presumption among the public that we indirectly serve that radiologist or any physician would want to pursue excellence. You know, it's probably the, the briefest way I can say it. So they they take what we do for granted in some way. We as a profession, not, not we the ABR, but but they count on something like the ABR to be there to do it. So, so I guess if I had to try and quantify it, I'd probably say about, have to a little more of what I do is on that side of things, which is how do we relate to stakeholders and how do we continue to represent value to those stakeholder groups? And I didn't include all of them. It wasn't intended to be a comprehensive list, but they're the big ones, right? The, the, how do we relate to candidates, diplomates, the public? And then I suppose I'd put program directors in that same list. 
But at the same time, the, the, the job is, you know, we're also approving budgets and, and hiring personnel for IT initiatives that we have to do in order to keep current and talking to attorneys about how do we deal with, you know, the practical things of, of having a nonprofit, which is the, the audit and the, the business, uh, the business law functions that go into a lot of the things that we encounter day to day. The COVID-19 pandemic has undoubtedly disrupted the cadence of your first year on the job. Can you tell us a bit about how the pandemic affected the ABR and your role as executive director? Yeah, it's, it's interesting. I never got a chance to get used to the old cadence, so I don't know what it was like because uh, I arrived about four months after the pandemic uh, kind of took hold. Our our focus since I arrived on July 1st of last year has, has really been around providing remote exams. And it was really based on something that I ran across quite recently by Yuval Harari, where basically said the risks of doing nothing uh, amidst something like a pandemic. He was actually talking specifically about the pandemic, but the, the risk of doing nothing, meaning failure to failing to innovate were greater than the risks of innovation. So we took on innovations that were challenging over such a short time period. I mean, if we had decided to do this, this would have been a three-year project, not an eight-month project. But we didn't have a choice. So staff and I have been just sort of consumed by getting these exams out because these reflect very, very to thousands of individuals' lives, right? The, the timing of this process is important. And uh, we realized we were not going to be able to wait out the pandemic. Uh, nobody could for most of what they're doing. That's really been, been what we've been doing is focusing on, okay, for now, uh, for this year, I would say when we get through the course and next month, you know, we'll be a year into this process. But actually, we complete as of tomorrow, we will the exams. And uh, that catch up, which only started the first week of January, and, and again, gave us only about six months and change to get it developed, really has been the challenge. And, uh, and, and here's the good news is that these innovations that we developed, I think, are sustainable. I think we'll be able to do it. This was not a short-term fix. If it works, we'll continue doing it. That's great. I was going to ask you, you know, what you anticipate will be the lasting changes brought about by the needs of social distancing during the pandemic. Yeah. Well, of course, those those needs of we've seen it just in the last ten days. You know, decreasing this this idea of you know how how much distance do we need? Do we need masks, et cetera? It's still flux, but but uh, we would argue on the downward side of the curve. But I, I think it really gets back to then the secondary things unrelated to the pandemic. Well, why should the individual have to travel for an exam if we can create an exam that can be done without travel? And it's, it's kind of interesting. We we got a lot of uh, criticism for why didn't you do this three years ago? And, and the reality was there are downsides to this process. There are small security risks. There is what it looks like is credible internal stakeholders, other physician groups, other subspecialty boards. So, so I don't, it's not all perfect. It's just that I think moving forward, we've kind of proven with this somewhat risky experiment that we can make it work and, and we're going to continue to make it better. But the, the long-term plan is that, yeah, this, this thing prompted by the pandemic likely will be our, our revised model. Yeah, that's excellent. Do you look back and see uh, your business school education as contributing to your ability to navigate these past nine months or so? Yes. I, uh, the short answer is yes. The, the only problem is I, I'm not sure I recognize them specifically when they happen, but uh, sometimes I'll look back and say, yeah, that's something I never would have thought of or at least thought of in that way without 
without having gone through some of the courses uh, I did at business school. An awful lot of it, as you say, you know, an awful lot of, of what I dealt with would have been things that I would have dealt with over the 20 years in private practice on the hospital medical staff, uh, executive committee and, and the board chairman, et cetera. So it's difficult to parse those out, right? You know, I think it would be different if, if I had been 20 years younger when I did the business school, then maybe those would have been more directly related to that. But as it was, absolutely, there, there are times I find myself, in fact, I'll be sitting with staff and, and something will click and, and, and I'm thinking back to something we read or something that was a major point in change management or crisis management. You know, I know, and of course, in, in your jobs, you've dealt with that as well. You know, how do we communicate when, in, in, you know, and, and to what degree these things were all, I think, reinforced, if not new ideas in, in business. Yeah, Absolutely. Recently, the ABR rebranded maintenance of certification to continuing certification. Why that change? Yeah, that's a great question. I wish I knew the answer to that. <laughs> I, I'll tell you, it's, it's, a, it's continuing certification. And that became, I think, a, a slow evolution at the ABMS, which, of course, is our, our umbrella organization. Parable is not quite the right thing. But, but yeah, they, you know, ABMS has standards across all the member boards. And, and there was this evolution from maintenance of certification into continuing certification. As far as the exact reasons, I, I'm not sure. I think they're, both terms have been used sort of interchangeably, uh, although MOC was the more conspicuous term. So nothing really changed about the program, and, and I think that's important to emphasize. We, we're going to be using both terms, I think, in the short term, just to, to try to diminish any confusion and ultimately wind up with continuing certification because that was the – I think that was more understandable to the public during the Vision Commission the testimony phase back in 2019 to 2020. So, so I, I would just reinforce for the listeners, it's not a, a real change in the program as much as a change in terminology that we hope is more intuitive, not only to practitioners, but also to the public that uh, that, that might look at, okay, what, what a certification entail? Does that make sense? I mean, I, unless, I don't know if you've seen any, there's certainly no differences in the programmatic offering. Yeah, no, it does. I mean, you know, I, I really appreciate your articulating that. I mean, one might wonder if it was a concerted effort to rebrand a program that in some spheres was losing popularity. But oh, well, that's interesting. That, that was not the intent. The intent was merely to, I, I think, continuing certification is probably grammatically closer to what this really is. And, and perhaps maintenance of certification was, uh, uh, you know, back in 2003 when I, I think John Madewell uh, delivered first lecture I ever heard on, on maintenance of certification as it would reflect radiologists. You know, radiologists are very late to this this way of thinking. And I think it was borrowed at that time from other boards. And as a result, uh, it's just evolved to continuing certification. But at some point, you just have to change what you call it in the communications. So, uh, like I said, we'll probably use both terms parenthetically and then move toward continuing certification, but it was not a, a conscious effort because the maintenance of certification was bad and continuing certification is good, but rather I think continuing certification is just a little yeah. bit better. So. Uh, understood. Um, recently you shared the news in the monthly newsletter that fee reductions might be coming for ABR services. So what is motivating those changes? Well, you know, we're, we have a very public financial record and with the, Growth in our reserves is really not because we're charging more in fees than we spend in costs, but rather because the market has done extremely well, as, as you and everyone knows over the last decade. Um, we found ourselves, we, we, we 
don't need to maintain reserves at quite that level. Can we basically look at ways to control fees so that we're not, you know, we're not trying to get rich. We're not trying to build a huge stockpile. We need a certain level of reserves in order to withstand, well, for example, returns because it's, you know, it's a portfolio that represents the investment reserves. But at the same time, we're not trying to grow that infinitely, nor are we comfortable with even a multiplier of, of two or three. We want to get less than that. So, so that's part of it. The, the challenge right now, and, and I do anticipate some some level of fee reduction, probably to small groups that we've targeted groups that I looked at and I said, you know, we're charging more than this costs us to administer for specific programs. I don't want to presume to comment on behalf of the board, but I think these, the fee reductions for 2022 will likely be targeted to small groups, but there'll be significant decreases in what those fees would be. The more global groups, like the initial certification for diagnostic radiology, which impacts 1,300 candidates or more per year, it's a little tougher because any increment then has that same reflection in the, the operating, sort of basically our operating revenue. So, so we just need to be a little careful. I've been pushing this since before I took on this job as a as board president, saying, you know, I know we need to cover costs, but at the same time, what can we do to reduce our our costs and hence reduce our fees? And we'll be looking at that very carefully in the next couple of years. I, the, the caution is we haven't hit steady state with the new exam models yet. And my staff reminded me of that. We're still trying to improve them. So we're not at a steady run rate. And you think we would be, not for COVID, we might be. So I would anticipate some great reductions in 2020. Yeah, I mean, the initiative is really uh, laudable, uh, particularly, you know, when thinking about the typical business school uh, curriculum around pricing, where one wouldn't even necessarily be sensitive to costs when setting pricing, uh, more related to what the market will bear and uh, in terms of revenue generation. But, you know, just sort of filtering through some of the key points you've made in identifying the creation of value for key stakeholders, then revenue generation is not necessarily completely aligned with the principle of creating value to the shareholders. Well, I, I think the critical thing, as you said, is we're not interested in charging what the market will bear. We're interested in, in uh, covering our costs. Yeah. And I think we have that obligation, that uh, again, that fiduciary obligation back to to the people who pay the fees. I share this story uh, once or twice with larger groups. My, my son is an R3 in radiology, and he called me on my 60th birthday last year, and he said, happy birthday, Dad. What are you going to do about fees? In one breath, and, and I'm very conscious of it. I, I think we we realize that we have an obligation to keep fees at the lowest possible level, and, and we're going to never do that. I, 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 you know, the only caveat is people think this is a simple thing to do, um, and it's it's actually very complicated to do it well, and it's expensive. Um, yeah. In today's day and age, by the time you're you're covering insurance for employees, by the time you know you and we are, are very conscious of keeping with sort of market value, if you will. You know, we don't overpay. We provide reasonable benefits, but we're, we're trying to balance things between what we want to do to maintain a good workplace and a good work environment at the same time, realizing that ultimately I have a responsibility to candidates and diplomats to keep these as low as possible. You mentioned that as a nonprofit organization, the ABR's tax filings are public. In the most recently available filings from 2019, before the pandemic, 
There was a change in net assets from $40.7 to $47 million. With $47 million in net assets, what are your perspectives on the role of those assets and how to best put them to work? Yeah, so and, and as you know, you know, using reserves to fund operations is sort of a no-no. You just don't do that. I would argue the ABR, and I have argued this with the board, and they agree quite recently, we're different, uh, meaning we should be willing to spend down the assets that, you know, because that growth was not because we took in more money than we spent, but instead it's because the market did extremely well. And, and we can't count on that forever. Nobody does. But at the same time, there's a point at which I, I think spending down the reserve in order to have fee abatements is, is an important measure. Challenge is that as much as we, we, we hate to increase fees, right? That's a very unpopular thing to do. So, you know, you start to ride this roller coaster. So we just want to be very thoughtful and intentional around fee reduction so that we can make them stick. And the problem is we'd be making them stick not based on operating on revenue. We'd be making them stick based on a portfolio. But, but your point is well made. I, I, I think. You know, that, that growth is a result of the equity market more than anything else. And you've all seen it. Your, your listeners have seen it. But at the same time, we don't need to maintain reserves at that level. And, and that's where we hope to at least implement some fee reductions, basically drawing off, off those reserves. At the same time, we, we just have to be mindful that the reserves are there for a reason, and that is to support unanticipated infrastructure needs that, that might so, so I hope that was that. That's certainly the way the board is, as candid as I can be, the way the board is looking at it. We know we're different. We're not, and we, we have to be. We have an obligation, I think, and, and that's how I, I word it to the board. Uh, and they agree. Uh, we have an obligation to maintain fees at the lowest possible level and to watch. You know, it's, it's an embarrassment in some way. You know, you know, it's great the market's doing well. Everybody's happy about that. But at the same time, we need to be reasonable in how much reserve we maintain uh, going forward. Yeah, absolutely. And I mean, having assets is a blessing and it is an opportunity to invest in the organization in any number of ways. One of them is, is to return value to the stakeholders, uh, namely through reduced fees. Um, another one is to engage in R&D. And I'm curious the extent to which uh, the ABR has engaged in R&D over the recent years. And what are your thoughts about budgeting for R&D going forward? Well, that's a great point, and that has been a topic recently. Uh, you may remember the Division Commission report and the current draft standards that just came out, I guess, last month, uh, for, went through the beginning of July, talk about the board using dollars to do research. We actually have the ABR Foundation as well, much smaller corpus, uh, right around a million dollars, I believe, um, and we have informally made that available to people, uh, and what we're going to do is formalize that, and I believe look to do that. I, I'm reluctant to to say to people paying fees that our intention is to grow a research fund, but at the same time, this may be an opportunity because that growth, of course, was not based on fees. That growth is based on the equity market um, or the market in general. And, and, I, and that is uh, that was brought up actually. Vince Matthews in the communication to me just in the last ten days said we need to be looking at ways to to do research into what board certification means. Um, it's only that particular research is very hard to do. It's very hard to have a control group. It's, it's very hard to, to you know, basically take the variables out that you would need to do it otherwise. So I'm not surprised that, you know, people have struggled, I think, to do that research. We would actually fund it. We probably wouldn't do it. I think it needs to be independent. I think, you know, but we are willing to have considerations around funding for 
individuals who might say, hey, I have this great idea that would examine the role of board certification, especially continuing certification, actually, in, in, in what value it brings. Our role, you know, we would see as supporting that, but not necessarily doing it because I, I think it would have more credibility as an independent activity. Yeah, I mean, you know, research in the interest of providing a better product and better um, services to your stakeholders, I think, is really well aligned with the organization. It's not just necessarily the value of continuing certification, but how does one uh, implement uh, the testing procedure and, you know, what's relevant, what's not relevant. And as you mentioned, it's hard work. So, uh, and probably the NIH isn't going to fund it. So, (laughs) Uh, I wouldn't count on that. Yeah, why not? Okay, excellent. No, thank you. Thank you for indulging me in those uh, questions. Let's turn to your family for a moment. One of the concerns that I hear amongst radiology leaders is achieving a good work-life balance, and in particular as it pertains to um, nurturing family life. Can you share some details of that journey with us? Yeah, I have three kids. Uh, they're all grown now. Um, I guess their age is 28, 22. You know, they have their own lives now. But as they were growing up, I, I intentionally didn't, I put off the, the graduate school thing, the MBA for a while for that reason. You know, I think it, I look back on this sort of an idyllic kind of thing. The kids were involved in sports and school activities. And, you know, that was, that was a blast. In fact, it, it, it hit home quite recently. We were talking about academic productivity levels among, you know, you know, among radiologists and, and writing that next paper. And a, a colleague of mine years ago said, you're not going to judge your life based on how many papers you wrote. You know, it's, it's, it's not uh, that, that's not what's going to define you as an individual. And, and she wasn't actually talking specifically about me. She was just talking about all of us really. Are we really going to look back and say, I wish I had written one more paper, one more book, after, et cetera. I mean, those are important activities uh, to be sure. It's just that, you know, I look back on it and I say, you know, it was, it was more about, about the kids. And, and right now they're in, uh, I've got their own Eastern time zone. And of course, you know, you and I are in Mountain Standard Time all the time. And, uh, but I'll be heading back next week and, and it's an opportunity to see the grandkids and, and do the fun stuff, uh, honestly. So uh, so I don't regret not writing more papers personally. But I, I, I think, you know, for that balance is, is challenging sometimes. And, and I know that there were times when I missed school activities. Uh, I, I'll tell you a short story. I was, when I was elected president of the medical staff, I missed uh, my son played water polo in high school. And he, uh, currently a radiology resident at the time, he was a high school water polo player. And, and he had a game that was like an hour away, you know, so normally I would have gone. And I said, I'm going to have to skip this game. It was a big deal. It was a regional game that mattered. And I said, I'm, expect to, you know, this, this vote happens tonight for president medical staff. And, and what he didn't understand it, it was unopposed, you know, and, and, and because after the thing, he called me from the thing, he said, we won the game. And he said, how'd you do in the election? I said, well, I won, but it's one of these, you know, sort of structured ballots, you know? And so I was almost embarrassed to say, I missed your game for an election. I was going to win anyway. I just felt that I needed to be there, which I, I think actually is a true statement. I needed to be there. So, you know, th- those things, of course, those trade-offs came up from time to time, but in, in general, you know, I think one of the advantages of, of radiology for many of us is even though there's a, a lot of off-hours work and a lot of weekends you have to work, it's a little more predictable than some of our clinical colleagues have. So it worked out. Yeah, well, well stated. When thinking about our profession, what keeps you up at night? Well, the profession at large, I, I, I think, you know, when we look at these larger and larger organizations, that are 
becoming these conglomerate immunologists. I, I think in some ways, uh, for lack of a better word, I'll say the technology. Um, and I know that's that's not maybe even the most accurate way to say it, but it's kind of the way people think about it. I, I think it starts to distance us from you know, why we didn't went into the field in the first place. And, and it also takes away the, the local feel of, uh, you know, in my group that I, that I left last year, you know, of, of 23 to 26 people where you're kind of pulling together because uh, I'm concerned it becomes really about widgets. And, uh, and I know it's going to play out differently in different locations and different practices. But uh, that, that would be, I, I think, as I would look at it, uh, again, I had a kind of an idyllic practice, too, because we were growing collegial. You know, we had our rough spots, but for the most part, as a group, we got together, we came to the right decisions, and we got along. Um, and and I, I'm worried that the larger and larger these organizations get, the more, more you know, like hogs on the wheel, less like practitioners working toward those relationships that are all local, right? I mean, you know, there's a limit to how much teleradiology you can do and actually know the person at the other end. And, and I know it's done, and, and it's, it's not impossible. It's difficult. I won't talk about AI because that's going to get its press elsewhere. So, so I think uh, I, I'm, I'm probably in that camp that says that probably middle of the road that AI is going to change things, but it's not going to make reality obsolete in any widespread way. And, and, uh, and but I don't claim to have any particular authority in that. But that first thing I do have some authority in it, and that's just having witnessed the relationships and how important they are in in, in generating a successful and rewarding practice. Uh, I will less and less. Uh, sort of an automatic as we go to larger and larger uh, practice organizations. Yeah, yeah. And, and, and ending on a positive note, what excites you most about radiology? You know, it's it, this is almost embarrassing to say. When I was going to work every day in private practice, I looked forward to going to work. I, it was fun. I knew I was going to be doing interesting things that were important. I still feel that way about my new job. Even though I'm not going to a hospital every day, I feel like I'm doing important work. It's a lot of fun. You know, I, I think the future for the profession is is just amazing. You know, provided we keep as an organization or as an industry, we keep our focus on the things that matter. Uh, we talked about a lot of them today, and that really I think is why, as I'm driving into work every day, it's like this is as good as it gets. Uh, honestly, not perfect, but really good. That's excellent. Well. Dr. Brent Wagner, I can't thank you enough uh, for sharing your thoughts today, uh, your journey, a truly fascinating one, and one that uh, I think many of our listeners will find inspiring. Profound appreciation. Thank you. Thank you very much. It was a lot of fun to have this chat, and uh, um, I hope it was useful to some of your listeners. Please join me next month when I speak with Reed Omery, the Carol D. and Henry P. Pendergrass Professor and Chair of the Department of Radiology and Radiological Sciences, Professor of Biomedical Engineering at Vanderbilt University Medical Center and School of Medicine in Nashville, Tennessee, an interventional radiologist who has pioneered image-guided therapies for hepatocellular carcinoma. Dr. Omery serves on the Board of Directors for the Society of Chairs of Academic Radiology Departments and is President-Elect of the Association of University Radiologists. He founded and directs the Vanderbilt University School of Medicine's Medical Innovators Development Program and co-leads the Medical Center's strategic planning efforts. 
As host of his podcast, Innovation Activists, Designing Healthcare's Future, and through an active presence on social media, Dr. Omri is a passionate proponent of healthcare innovation and fostering the next generation of radiologists and healthcare leaders through inspirational and supportive leadership. Taking the Lead is a production of the Radiology Leadership Institute and the American College of Radiology. Special thanks go to Anne-Marie Pasco, Senior Director of the RLI and co-producer of this podcast, to Port City Films for production support, Linda Sowers, Megan Swope, and Debbie Kakal for our marketing and social media, Brian Russell, Jen Pendo, and Crystal McIntosh for technical and web support, and Shane Yoder for our theme music. Finally, thank you, our audience, for listening and for your interest in radiology leadership. I'm your host, Jeff Rubin, from the University of Arizona College of Medicine in Tucson. We welcome your feedback, questions, and ideas for future conversations. You can reach me on Twitter at G-E-O-F-F-R-U-B-I-N or using the hashtag RLITakingTheLead. Alternatively, send us an email at RLI at ACR.org. I look forward to you joining me next time on Taking the Lead.